Um, well, thank you, everybody, for, for coming to one of our local Broward chapter meetings. I want to specify that it is a Broward chapter meeting because I have a, a small competition going with Dade, um, but just want to specify that. And also, we have a great member of our Broward board who's moderating this. We've got one hell of a panel for you tonight on investing in cannabis. Um, I mean, honestly, and I look at the makeup of this panel, this, this is one that you'd be paying $400, $500 for a conference ticket to come see, and we're providing it to you guys tonight here. So with that being said, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to connect us to Facebook Live while we're doing this at the same time, uh, let me introduce our panelists. So from Bespoke Financial, we have George Manturell. Uh, George has 14 years of asset-based lending and structured credit experience. He started his career as an interest rates trader at Goldman Sachs, where he managed his own $2 billion book. From 2013 to 2018, he worked at Guggenheim Partners Investment Management Structured Credit Group in Los Angeles, and his primary responsibilities are centered around underwriting credit risk, negotiating deal structures with issuers, portfolio management of three debt funds totaling a billion dollars in assets under management, and credit risk management. Guys, give me some time here. They're very accomplished, and they've got a lot in their, their bios. Next, we have Emily Paxia. Emily has reviewed thousands of companies in the cannabis industry and has worked with countless founders in many capacities. She's helped shape founders' pitch preparations, their go-to-market strategies, product launches, and advised on day-to-day business operations. Emily is extremely active in the investment decision-making and ongoing investment oversight processes. She works closely with her partners to create meaningful deal structures, ensuring that proper governance is carried out at the company level. Emily has also dedicated time and energy supporting policy groups and has served as the board of directors. Uh, great. Everything that you're the board of directors for didn't show up, but I remember there was Athletes for Care. Literally is blank right here. So Athletes for Care, and, and she can fill you in on the other uh, Emily graduated from NYU with a master's in psychology in 2008, and she graduated from Skidmore College with a bachelor's in psychology in 2002. Matt Nordgren at quarterback, standing at six foot five out of da- sorry, Matt's wrong bio. Uh, number seven. So Matt Nordgren, uh, a former quarterback for the University of Texas, he was also on Bravo TV's Most Eligible Dallas. And at the time, he was becoming a a partner in the family business, Nortco, a Dallas-based energy firm. This allowed Matt to start his own private equity slash family office focused on sports and media. Matt is the CEO and founder of the Arcadian Fund and Arcadian Capital Management, a venture fund, private equity group strategy focused on ancillary service, providing companies in and around the cannabis and hemp industries. There's a lot more. But Matt is a very accomplished investor in the, in the cannabis space, and we're very lucky to have him. In addition, we have another Matt from Texas, Matt Hawkins. Matt Hawkins is the founder and managing principal of Entourage Effect Capital. I believe they have about $250 million under management in the cannabis space. Um, it's a venture capital firm focused specifically on investing in the legalized cannabis industry. Since 2014, the firm has made close to 70 investments um, out of two funds, co-investments, and into uh, special purpose entities. Prior to, fa- prior to founding uh, Entourage Effect, he was a partner and president of a private real estate investment company, which acquired REO and MPL from banks and financial institutions across the country with particular interest in multifamily, residential, and self-storage assets. Um, all very accomplished people. And because of that, uh, I decided not to moderate this panel myself, but I brought in somebody who has much more knowledge, is much smarter than me, and uh, would frankly do a better job. Not only that, he is a board member on our Broward uh, chapter for C-Lab, our very own John Robbins from Ackerman. So now that I've butchered everyone's bios and they're probably not going to come back to C-Lab, I'm going to turn it over to John to win them back and put together a great panel for us. So John, I'm going to turn off my camera and the panel is now yours. Great. Thanks, Todd. And, and I'll do my best. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to see some familiar faces that I haven't seen in quite a while. And this is a great dream team panel. Uh, several of these folks or their companies are, are, are major players in this particular space, in the cannabis space, and we've been hearing about them for years and have been involved in, if you take a look at the websites uh, for Arcadian, Bespoke, um, Poseidon, and Entourage Effect, I was looking at them earlier today. Some of their portfolio companies are uh, pretty incredible, and they had the foresight to, uh, to get in early. So uh, I'm really, really pleased with this panel. I'm looking forward myself to hearing what everybody has to say. I think that 
everybody here will agree that we're uh, certainly experiencing unprecedented turbulence in the market, and the cannabis market is no exception. And in this particular market, at least it's been my experience that over the past year or so, deal flow did start to slow dramatically or change uh, the character and nature of the deals that you'd see in this particular space. And then COVID came along, which is an interesting dynamic because uh, as, as many of you probably know, uh, particularly in medical, uh, in, in medical uh, jurisdictions and areas where they do have medical uh, legal medical marijuana or cannabis, um, the market has done quite well from a revenue perspective because it was considered an essential service. So I really want to know um, sort of where we were headed in 2020 pre-COVID, how COVID and more recent events may have changed things, uh, how they have affected the landscape. Did John just freeze? Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm not hearing anything either. Well, I think his question was a pretty general question. Um, and maybe we can just finish that question, uh, lead into Emily or Matt or George, which was, uh, what, what was the market going to be like without COVID? And what have we seen as the major differences uh, with COVID? Very calm. John? You back? You're on mute, Jonathan. Trying to unmute. Can you hear there me? There you now? go. You got it. Yep, got okay. it. Okay, terrific. So let me throw this out. I guess I'll throw it to Emily. Uh, you could be the first victim. I want to know what your expectation was coming into 2020. Perhaps you could talk about what led up to 2020 to to solidify those expectations, and then we could throw it out to the rest of the panel to answer that same question and talk about how the events over the last three, four months have affected things. Okay, thank you so much. And thanks for having us on. It's really fun to be with this group. Um, we've all worked together on a number of projects. So, um, you know, 2019 was an interesting year for the cannabis industry. Uh, as we've talked about a few times over the course of the last few months, 2019 was kind of the long running bear market of cannabis investing. And so, we were seeing a lot of corrections and um, challenges, frankly, hitting the industry throughout that time. And, and with every emerging market, these types of uh, cycles are necessary in order to see the growth of it and then some readjustment and some realignment of expectations and then, and then continued growth from there. And that's just part of maturing as an industry. Um, so when, when we were embarking into 2020, it's funny, my brother and I are the co-founders of our company and as you know, suggested by the name, we're big, we're big into sailing and water sports. And we were out for a sail on, on Christmas Eve in the Bay, and it was quite chilly, but we were talking, we were kind of debriefing on what had happened through 2019. And we were reflecting on what we'd learned and what, what we were anticipating as potential positive outcomes of 2020. It was our kind of call that the first two quarters would continue to be challenging as a lot of what was driving that bear market action was um, some disappointing results coming out of the Canadian licensed producers and, and some of the MSOs. And, and again, as part of a cycle of maturation for a market. But we were also looking forward to what we have started to see, which is some of the reports coming out of the GTIs, the True Leaves, the Cure Leaves, that are demonstrating that cannabis as a business does work. And so we kind of thought by the end of Q2, we'd be really ramping into this next phase. And it's interesting when we write uh, investment memos on every single deal we do and to keep it as an internal thing and we update it, we also include risk factors, which sometimes are very relevant to the time and sometimes um, are just also relevant to the industry, all of the above. One of the risk factors we had not written into things in 2019 was a global pandemic of the scale of COVID-19. And I don't think we were alone because the entire airline industry seems to have been surprised by this as well as entire other market sectors. So 2020 has definitely seen a, a, a very interesting kind of reset and reshaping of a lens of what not just our industry, but what the macroeconomic environment is going to look like going forward. I would now add, you know, um, societal um, unrest for very, very good reasons, because we need a shift in that. And then maybe even constitutional crisis into potential risk factors for what's coming for 2020. But 
um, it certainly has shifted the way that we're thinking about things in the short and the long term. Sure, and I could tell you from a perspective of somebody who crafts and writes those risk factors, we've certainly had to take these recent events into consideration. So uh, all that all that boilerplate language has to definitely be updated and modified. Um, what about one of the two, Max? Your perspectives? I'll jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, obviously everything Emily is saying is we we agree with. Uh, I'll add. Interestingly, I think you know we all realize that because of the, uh, you know the the uh, the bull and then the bear that were present in the industry. You know, there, there's been a correction going on for quite a while now, and so we all knew that going into 20, there was going to be opportunities for you know, distressed or quasi-distressed investing. And, you know, for our firm, for example, and then we've also uh, had a workout with one of the uh, investments that we did with uh, Poseidon. Um, but we're set up to uh, to execute turnarounds. And um, we were not scared of the fact that we were probably going to have to do that, especially as we embarked on our third fund and whatever other new investments we were making out of fund two. Um, when COVID hit, obviously we were all just wondering what was going to happen. Um, we'll get into the fact that can't, there'll be probably a subsequent question later about um, just the essential business designation that was given to cannabis, which was a godsend. And we'll get into those details a bit later. But, but what really has happened is that because of that and a variety of other reasons, which we'll get into, you know, the cannabis industry is actually in pretty doggone good shape right now. And I know our portfolio as a whole is probably better than it was pre-COVID. So there's that. But then from an investing standpoint, you also have valuations that are probably about the same as they were prior to COVID. But yet a lot of the companies that have been experiencing the increase in top line and bottom line um, are valued the same way. So we think actually invest the investing climate is even better for uh, cannabis now than it was prior to COVID. Sorry, I lost you guys for a second. I don't know if you've heard me. Um, George, I was hoping maybe you could weigh in because it seems that 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 uh, spoke focuses more on the debt side than the equity side. And yeah. it's been my experience over the past year or so that um, it there, there had been a shift in focus from equity to debt, particularly in the sale leaseback. Uh, you know, there were a lot of sale leasebacks uh, in this particular space over the last year. I think that, you know, people may have been uh, uh, perhaps a little more reluctant uh, to, to take an equity, an equity position. So I was curious about that and what you look at from a, a, a collateral or security standpoint, particularly in a space where, uh, you can, as 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 um, an entity that's providing debt rather than equity, issues arise as to collateral. But you're also in a highly regulated industry, and one in which most operators in here in Florida, for sure, uh, are licensed. And it's not a simple task to simply foreclose on a license or a security interest in a license in the event of a default. So I was curious about your perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we at Bespoke come at this industry from decidedly a different angle than most VCs that are looking at opportunities. And, you know, our thesis all along had been cannabis will ultimately mature to resemble any other vanilla consumer product industry that's out there. And if you look at any of those industries, you know, these companies are not diluting themselves or conducting equity raises to finance inventory or for working capital needs. So for us, you know, as frothy as the equity capital markets were for cannabis in 2018 and even into early 2019, you know, it had been our assumption that either that would cool to a certain degree or even if it didn't, as the market matures and grows, these companies would need a viable debt solution in place because, you know, what happened at the tail end of 2019 as investors are treated, you know, disappointed with results, you know, maybe they had envisioned an easier path to RTO and have a liquidity point in Canada, for example. There were a lot of different assumptions that went into the valuations in the early part of 2019 that ultimately didn't pan out. Um, that being said, you know, I think the industry itself 
went through, you know, a necessary wave of consolidation. It's mm-hmm. still continuing today. And what it does is it leaves the stronger companies that have focused on really just executing in their lanes of expertise, um, the beneficiaries. Us looking as, as lenders, you know, obviously, most of these companies are still in their growth phase. The vast majority are not profitable and don't expect to be profitable in the near term, which is fine because as a lender, you know, you can secure yourselves against real assets that have value. Granted, it's not easy given the federal designation, but that's, you know, what the majority of our work went into when we launched the company is arriving at lending structures that we feel do protect our rights as a senior secured lender, but at the same time, really unlock value for these companies. And what you saw in 2019, when valuations took a hit, when equity investors really weren't as favorable, these operators really had to take a look and understand, okay, the dilution that I would have to bear in order to raise this capital has materially changed. Do I want to give up that amount of control or that amount of ownership in my company simply to be financing inventory or maintain business operations? So, you know, it's been beneficial in the sense that our value proposition has gotten more pronounced, I'd say, over time. And, you know, it was our assumption that this this sort of macro environment isn't something that would switch from night to day as soon as you went into 2020. We expected there to be some time before the industry really grew into sort of the valuations that had been thrown around previously. That being said, you know, just picking off Matt's point, I think it's placed the industry in a very strong position. You know, there's a lot of volatility. Obviously, today was a a rough day for the markets. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty as how this reopening will help recover the economy from the huge contraction that we've had. And even if we were to enter into a recessionary environment, you know, as an investor, cannabis still stands out as a bright spot. You know, it's a new industry. These are new companies. And you basically still have the opportunity to invest on the ground floor. And so I think all it's done is really position companies where, sure, it's not as, as easy money as it was a year ago or two years ago. But at the same time, it's built on more solid foundations. And I expect it sets these companies up to really scale going forward as investors do start coming back into the space. So given your your comment about, you know, revenue not being where perhaps people expected it would be by now, uh, and and given that this is what, as I would imagine everybody would agree, or we're talking about alternative or perhaps a bit more speculative investments than other traditional investments. So a company like Bespoke presumably is, you know, gets to capitalize on that in terms of the coupon or the, or, you know, on the, on the rates of return that you guys are getting. Have you been seeing any issues with uh, your investment partners or, or your, your, the, the folks with, to whom you've lended capital uh, in servicing their debt? And has that changed since COVID? Yeah, and I'm happy to report and knock on wood, you know, we haven't had that negative impact um, as a result of Corona. Again, that essential medicine carve out, it's very hard for anyone to have predicted it or, you know, expected it to come. I think it goes a long way when the world ever gets back to normal that state governments really did step up and support this industry. I think that'll have lasting benefits going into the future. Quite honestly, for us, the biggest changes we saw when when the shutdown came was the massive spike in sales really resulted in our loans having a, a much shorter duration than they originally had been because cash flow started coming a lot quicker into the system. And so we saw a heavy wave of repayments, which is good. It's what we'd expect to see. But at the same time, product needs to be kept on inventory so, or kept on shelves, I should say. So, you know, all of our borrowers basically turned around and said, we're paying down amounts drawn, but we also need to re-up again very quickly just because product was moving very quickly and they didn't want to lose that opportunity. So that coupled with just other interest from other licensed operators that never had really considered debt financing, because again, the, the limited options that they came into this year with got even further limited still. You know, every industry faced sort of capital shortages and, and wasn't really clear how they could sustain themselves. So I think both of those were just very positive trends. And the end result for us was just an increase in, in the demand that we had been seeing since the beginning of Q3 of 2019. Great. And, and Matt, from Arcadian's perspective, which is probably focused more on equity than debt, um, I'm curious to know what what you guys have seen and how you've had to pivot over the last year. Well, Matt, uh, Matt Nordgren. 
Hey, yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, well, the, the I think, you know, the good news for the industry is that it's an emerging industry and the entrepreneurs and founders at these companies uh, were expecting there to be issues. It, we didn't know what they were going to be. Um, so, you know, we've been pivoting long before COVID, long before bait crisis. I mean, this goes back, you know, a year, year and a half to where companies were having to be a little more realistic in terms of trying to be a cash flow business. Uh, companies were trying to run lean. Companies realized that their valuation metrics were a little strong. And so, you know, for about 12 months, I would say, I think Emily and Matt, George might agree, you started to feel like uh, we had a head start on getting to where we needed to be uh, to be in a pandemic. So I, I think, Jonathan, the, the answer is we've been, we're always pivoting. And, and as equity investors, uh, it, it, it did get better for us because uh, a lot of the stuff that happened in the early days with Canada and bankers and brokers started to be less attractive. And, and those options started to go away. And, and so uh, as equity investors, that gave us a little more optionality with our structures in terms of, you know, driving different things like corporate governance or independent boards or forensic accounting and, you know, things that Matt and Emily uh, talk a lot about as well. And, and now we're able to put those things into our deals. So we pivoted in that sense uh, to protect, uh, you know, investors, but ultimately to protect the industry and founders uh, to have structures and valuations that make sense um, and grow with the industry. Because I think we all forget about the fact that the industry grew 36% in terms of compound annual growth numbers last year at macro level. So that's a nice growth number. I mean, you can really structure these deals from an equity standpoint uh, in a better way today than you could before, but it's a constant pivot. It really is. Sure. And, and, and listen, despite that growth, we're certainly seeing lots of distressed entities out there, um, all of whom do not have the luxury or benefit, or all of whom are U.S. companies, I should say, do not have the luxury or benefit of filing for bankruptcy protection, which could be the subject of a whole other, a whole other panel discussion. Are you guys seeing opportunities out there in the distressed market, and and has COVID affected that? In that companies that were distressed perhaps might not be because of uh, the continued growth, the essential services. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to get uh, much government relief, but but they have been able to continue to sell product to the extent that they could produce product. Well, yeah, I think that um, my my take on this is that our firm believes that a big part of the uh, distress in the industry is caused by two factors. One, just the overestimation of the um, larger public companies uh, acquiring the illicit market quick. They, they weren't able to get it as quick as they thought. So that, that, hamp, that hindered their projections and they were punished by that. That, that trickled down the, to the uh, private side. But in addition to that, uh, to George's point, we don't have mechanisms in place that allow for companies to get cheap cost of capital to run their businesses. And so uh, lack of cash on balance sheets is a huge issue. Um, there's a huge need for for debt right now, um, um, but there's also a sensitivity to being able to pay, you know, private debt rates. Uh, not that George is charging anything outlandish. I have no idea what rates are, but I'm, but but <laughs> but there are people, there are firms out there that are that are doing that, and uh, that's a problem as well. And so you've got this clash of of you know what's best for the company, equity dilution you know, high yield debt or um, because there's no alternative. And as a result, that causes levels of distress that are unusual because a lot of these companies are growing. And so that that is where we see significant opportunities to create scale, to put companies together that uh, where you have, you know, benefits of economies of scale and you have cost reductions. And, and so that's kind of where our focus is right now. And we, we don't like calling it distressed because it really, some of these companies, you know, are, you know, aren't in your classic definition of distress where there's being, you know, pinch margins, um, need, you know, some, in some cases there's need for restructuring, but a lot of cases there's not. Sure. And, and, and again, that, that inability to access capital markets or to access traditional uh, financing services and lending services has been a real problem 
And unfortunately, you know, we're going to have George come in at these, you know, loan sharking rates and breaking people's thumbs if they're yeah. small. I'm kidding, George. Right. <laughs> That does raise an interesting issue. Did I interrupt you? I want you to be able to respond. What are your, who's, George is going to tell us his rates, I think. No. Yeah, no, I mean, I no, happy to do it. I mean, in general, what we've seen is, look, anytime a market starts, there's an element of price discovery, right? So keeping in mind, this is an industry that you're servicing that's illegal on a federal level. Keeping in mind, the banking sector is not open for it. You know, keeping in mind, a lot of these companies, again, you know, I mean, I would say in the companies that we've reviewed, we haven't seen this sort of high coupon of debt really be a cash drag because, you know, again, it's not that prevalent in the industry, you know, start to finish. Oftentimes, the real killer is the fact that, you know, these companies have ramped up operations, added on expenses that, you know, they're offsetting revenue is just nowhere near close to justify, right? So a lot of times there's just these intrinsic costs that have been built into the company because they just assumed that they would have rapid growth rates that mimic the industry's growth rate on on a macro level that really just didn't materialize. So, you know, for us, we don't necessarily focus on distressed companies because that's just not the, the segment of the market we're looking to service. For us, what we really target are existing companies that have been in operation for quite some time where we could actually underwrite the business model and assuming that they have defendable margins and assuming that the trajectory of growth for the business is on track with what we would expect, then we're, we're very comfortable sort of lending in those opportunities. And for the businesses themselves, because it's not a negative margin business, because they understand that as much as they give up a part of their margin, but they're able to scale their growth incrementally, um, you know, that's really just allowed companies we work with to start at credit limits ranging in the smaller size of, you know, call it one to $2 million, ultimately grow alongside us where now we're providing two to three X that amount of financing on a regular basis. So it really does, you know, at the end of the day, as much as companies are investing in growth and you're not expected to be a profit, your unit economics still do matter, right? And that's something that I think the broader market is, is shifting and, and casting a greater light on, which, which it should be if you're interested in building a sustainable business. And, and, and a very valid point about companies focusing on, on, on growth, uh, at least initially, rather than profitability, profitability, excuse me. And I'll throw this out to Emily. Did, was it your experience up until the you know, fairly recent slowdown uh, that companies were, in fact, focusing majorly on growth, uh, becoming multi-state operators, you know, I, I personally experienced a lot of companies that were on acquisition tears over the last couple of years, um, sometimes at ridiculously high multiples. Or is, are we now finding ourselves in sort of a, a readjustment period where that's balancing out? I think we are. And I think it's because, you know, quarter after quarter, it really what that playbook wasn't really showing a lot of value. And it was calling into question, would this ever work? because you can only have these scenarios so many times and then everyone starts to ask a lot of questions. Um, and this has been a bit of an experiment because it is a completely new market with this whole federal status of it in the US being what it is. It, it challenges it in so many different ways. And I, I feel like Matt, as Matt said, it's like we've, you're, you're just constantly met with challenges in this industry. But I think that, yes, we've seen the multiples lowering by a lot. I mean, we were seeing hundreds X revenue for a buyout. And now we're, we're in a much more reasonable range on that, if anything. And a lot of the MSOs now, or the I would say the top ones, when they're looking at acquisitions, they're not looking at acquisitions that will be a cash drag on their business. They're looking at acquisitions that can be helpful uh, across the board and accretive in, in their businesses. So I think that that's really important. And I think we've seen that shift too in the, in the private side as well. Um, so I'm optimistic about that because I think that um, some of the, the pains we've been suffering in this industry came at that growth at all costs approach to managing the business. And it was it, the bigger we could get, the better, the more headlines that a business could get, the better. Um, I will say a lot of our operators, I, I would say, are more the opposite of that. They've been kind of the heads down guys. And so they haven't always gotten the most press. But I've always, you know, it hasn't always been a focus on profitability, but it's always been a focus on if and when capital should dry up in the industry, because we've seen it happen a few times over, uh, you know, when Jeff Sessions rescinded the coal memo, mm -hmm. um, various times in the industry, even back to when Maureen Dowd ate a chocolate bar and freaked out in a hotel room. I mean, capital ran from the space even then. So it was like, 
we know that these things happen. And so we always try to talk to our founders about being prepared for when those moments come and being able to stretch out your business resources through that time. Um, but I think everyone has come back much more down to earth, or at least not everyone, but many groups have. And I'm, I'm very excited to see more of this focus on fundamentals. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me a little of the, of the uh, you guys are probably too, too young, but back in the late 90s before the dot-com bubble burst and, and uh, yes. the flurry of activity. And then, of course, there was a readjustment or correction. Yes. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I've been wondering, so to speak, and I'd like to throw it out to, to you all, is recent events, COVID specifically, has created a situation where federal government, state governments, municipalities, cities, uh, counties have found themselves in a very significant cash-strapped situation. Uh, they're hemorrhaging cash, uh, the, the governments, local and state and federal. And I'm wondering if this may be an opportunity uh, for the cannabis industry in terms of the legislation that we have been working so hard for so many years uh, to move forward. Is this going to be an opportunity for perhaps uh, individuals, even hopefully at the federal level, to say, you know what, we're, we're overlooking significant revenue, we're overlooking business opportunities, we're overlooking, I mean, the cannabis industry now employs hundreds of thousands of individuals. If, if uh, you know, cannabis is rescheduled or descheduled, uh, you know, obviously we, could, we can imagine another explosion. I'm curious to know if any of you think that recent events uh, might be a catalyst for change, finally. Well, they certainly are. Um, you know, you you bring up some important topics. I think all of us will agree that all of them are important. If you think about the tax revenue uh, potential, it's quite large. But if you think about the amount of the deficit, how much money we just put out to save COVID, trillions of dollars. I mean, billions of dollars is great. Uh, but the reality is there's trillions of dollars that have to be. So, yes, it's helpful. It, the job creation aspect, all the other things. Uh, equate to something that's really important, and that's that we get grass top support. You know, the grassroots campaign has been for decades extremely strong and continues to kind of grow like wildfire, and that will continue to happen. What we need is grass tops to realize that there's an opportunity. And the point you brought up, Jonathan, is that more of them are going to be compelled to see those opportunities. As you look today across public companies in cannabis, depending on the metric you're using, you're somewhere around 5 to 7% of those cap tables represent institutional support. So to get to be an industry with $16 billion in revenue last year, with that little support from the institutional class is quite remarkable. I mean, it's astounding actually. So to think that we only have 5% in the cap table, if that doubles and triples, and you, not even much, just a little bit, it changes everything for us. So just the slightest move there can actually open up more than we really think. And it's from that grass tops where we believe you'll start to see a lot of attention. Um, and it's because of things like tax and job creation and ESG. And let's not forget the fact that there's something going on in the world right now that nobody can not pay attention to. And, and this industry qualifies every way that you'd want in terms of being an ESG industry. There's a large pool of capital there that wants access to this type of an industry that can't today. And so just the slightest moves in some direction, uh, take this whole thing in another way. Um, and I think that's what we're all anticipating by some of the things we're seeing uh, during this time. Yeah, I think uh, just sitting in, in Dallas, Texas, I mean, even um, you know, a very conservative state, I don't think Texas is going to go legal anytime soon, but I do think that even, you know, middle, uh, you know, even right of center um, voters are starting to, you know, push their, their delegates to, um, you know, to, to push for, for legalization um, and not just at, at a state level, but at a national level for the reasons that, that you said, Jonathan, and for Matt said as well. I mean, this is a, if, if, and that's why we're so bullish on placing capital right now. We do think that the clock has, uh, we, we've sped up the clock on getting to legalization, maybe even by, you know, shorten it by a year or two. Um, and if that's the case, then the minute this thing becomes quasi-legal, such as an event like the States Act, maybe even the Safe Banking Act, would or variations thereof, 
would allow for, that's when the NASDAQ New York Stock Exchange will probably start listing companies. And the minute that happens, then institutional capital jumps in the game and jumps in the game in a big way. So we, we, we think that's a, a, just a huge opportunity right around the corner. And because it's also going to be a paradigm shift on valuations when, when that kind of capital comes into the game. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly seems like the industry has been making all the right moves. Obviously, we don't control outside events, but some of these outside events have actually, you know, worked to the benefit of the industry. But I also, it's been my experience that operators tend to be extremely compliant. They understand it's a highly regulated industry, but they also understand everybody's watching. And so you you have a, a, an industry that that works under tremendous challenges from from, you know, cost of doing business for a variety of reasons being you know, more than you would see in just about any other industry to the thin margins. Um, you know, let's, let's hope that, you know, even if it's baby steps and we start with the States Act or the Safe Banking Act, you know, it, it's certainly ahead in, in the right direction. Well, Jonathan, you'd be surprised how quickly things would move when the right people uh, decide to make a move. I mean, let's, let's think about how quickly this thing might turn tomorrow if Big Pharma said we're in. I mean, it might be shocking. Um, you know, but the reality is that um, uh, you're starting to feel like this energy from the larger players, like they just have to figure out this industry. And um, what, what I think you'll see, and, and maybe the other panelists agree, uh, is that capital at this point in time, after the longest bull run in history, everybody expected something. Um, so there's a lot of capital sitting on the sideline as they start to say, okay, plan in action. We all knew something was going to happen. Um, what do we do now? Uh, you know, you're an asset allocator and you're looking at your portfolio and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to get my yield into stable assets in my core portfolio. Many of them are unstable for some period of time. And so you're really forced to, you know, lean in and buy big companies at a right price or lean in your alternatives to create some extra yield. So I think we're going to start seeing, you know, self-preservation from a lot of larger allocators to allocate through people like George, Matt, Emily, and, and hopefully our, us as well because uh, they need to generate yield. And if they can lean into cannabis, which you know, last year in the markets, if you look at the big boards, I think the number was around 23, 24% of companies that IPO'd uh, were cash flow positive. That was the lowest I think any of us have ever seen. That won't be the case going forward. People want you know, real businesses with the capital in an uncertain environment. So cannabis all of a sudden becomes attractive. Um, when maybe it was just not really being talked about before in many environments. So you have that as well. And it's sort of a self-interest from the larger players that really need to lean into this asset class during the next year or two specifically. And, and I would tell you, because I'm positioned a little differently than you guys, and then I'm an attorney and I represent clients who are either operating the space or perhaps want to get involved in the space. And I'm starting to see that uh, the larger players uh, or non-traditional players for this particular space, starting to kick the tires, ask questions. The focus has shifted from, you know, risk mitigation. Am I going to get in trouble? Is my board is my board going to jail? That's that's the question that I get oftentimes. And now they're really starting. There there is a keen interest for the very reasons that that you suggested. Um, let's switch gears a little bit for a second because. You know, we've we've talked in the past, and I know you guys have talked in the past about this is not your typical widget. This is not your typical uh, investment. So, from a due diligence perspective, if you guys are looking at a petition at, at, at a particular company, it could be an ancillary service provider or a plant touching company or the like. I want to talk a little bit about how how you approach. Uh, a, a particular target differently than you would say in, you know, in, in a more traditional business, even if it were an alcohol, uh, you know, alcohol or, or other alternative investment, but you don't have this tension between state and federal law. I'll throw well, it out to anybody. <laughs> we look as hard as we can. It's interesting what you end up finding down the road though. Uh, Team, what do you guys, any interesting stories you want to share? <laughs> I love, I love great war stories. Please share. Well, I'll, I'll start off just because I think, you know, again, looking from a lender's perspective, it's, it's a different viewpoint, but I think, you know, hopefully insightful for everyone. Um, for us, the way we're evaluating operators that come looking for financing is we've built out sort of a 
you know, internal scoring methodology that really looks at, you know, north of 35 different financial KPIs. And that's everything from current liquidity, what your runway looks like, you know, what your existing leverage is, if any, how your own customers are behaving, not just in terms of activity, but also in terms of payment, which is key. Um, and also, how are you managing your own existing liability? So for us, you know, because we are focused on, you know, the lending opportunity and want to make sure that, you know, these companies can sustain not just, you know, the cost of interest on an ongoing basis, but ultimately that these are entities that aren't, that aren't existing because they have to have another financing round beyond us. So for us, we're looking for just sustainable companies that could withstand a shock, um, not just on a microeconomic level, but even on a macroeconomic level. And so, you know, it's less focused on what I would say the longer term growth projections would be or what other avenues they could grow into, even though that is meaningful to look at. For us, we, we take a deep dive into sort of where the company is right now and try to understand, you know, how working with capital, the capital provided by Bespoke really can either accelerate this company or if absent that, this company is really just back on its last leg. So we try to keep it broad, um, look at a variety of different features, but equally important is also the due diligence side of it for us. So everything from License validation, you know, background checks on management members onto an actual on-site visit, which, you know, I think is very insightful for any investor, debt or equity to actually go see how the day-to-day operations actually flow at the, at the operating level. So, you know, I'd say all of those factors combined together, sort of giving us a good picture of where the company is right now. Emily, yeah, Matt, Matt. I, I, yeah, I think that um, I, I just one. I think one thing that we like to follow is we say it doesn't matter if it's a widget company or a cannabis company. I mean, the first thing that we look for is the quality of management. And I think, um, you know, from a from an equity side on on you know at venture capital level, that's tantamount. And I think Emily and Matt would agree with that. Credit obviously is you need to have a good management team as well, but you're also looking at a, you know, what the what the assets are, and that's obviously not as you know when you're taking equity risk, it's just a bit different. But um, you know, and that's where, you know, mo- most of our, we've all had successes and failures and the failures have usually been where we, um, we had a flaw in the underwrite with the management team. And, um, and it happens, unfortunately. I mean, Emily and I, we've talked, told the story a million times. We've been in a company where we both had to come in when we suspected fraud and we had to restructure the company, oust the, the, the founder. Uh, we put in a rescue financing package, and um, luckily the company is now um, thriving. And um, and so you have to be ready to do that when you're um, when you're playing with uh, venture capital money. And if you're not, then you know it's not for you. And um, and that's why we also think that family offices that have not invested in cannabis or even in you know really early stage industries like this. Um, they're not typically equipped to do the hands-on work that, that we're doing. And, and thus, we think, you know, having a, um, uh, a management partner and a, and a fund set up is still the best route to go for equity when it comes to cannabis investing. Emily, any? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I would echo that wholeheartedly. And I think that two of the things that have been the most recent learnings is as these companies grow in time and market, they also tend to collect uh, nuances or interesting aspects of how they've been running or managing their businesses. So one of the things that I'd say is, is critical is the management team, but it's also your co-investors because as Matt, both Matt's, we've been through a lot together because this industry has been a lot of work to build. And I think we're all in it because we believe in it and we want to build it and we believe that our efforts will also drive returns for our investors. And so you want to know that you've got a cap table that's equipped with other like minds in terms of willing to lean in and provide resources together. And so I can't say enough about how important that is for us. Like I just got off a diligence call and, you know, I'm kind of thinking about who could, who could be an interesting group to work with on something like this. The other thing is that, In the early days of cannabis, we've not had access to the most competitive set of resources. And what I mean by that is insurance, audit, and tax. And I'm incredibly worried about where we're headed as an industry, and I'm hopeful that right now we can all really, really call to task that we get the best service providers we can with eyes on this business. 
because I'm concerned that like the project that Matt was just talking about, there was an auditor in that project running an audit and that auditor should have been raising flags with the board and it, it, because there were serious concerns. And instead what we got was an enormous audit bill instead of really raising concerns with the board. And I've heard about this happening time and time again in this industry because I, I really admire the brave who've gotten in and who have taken the lead on this. But I also think we all have to hold ourselves to the highest level of integrity and operation or else we're never going to be ready for when the real wave of institutional capital comes in. And so I'd like to see a dedication to um, really, really good tax work and really good audit work to help protect each other as investors in this sector and to protect, frankly, the founders, too, because the better we can build this for the long run, the better for everyone. Um, and the tax piece is a big piece for me because I do think some people have been trying to figure out, I mean, 280E could not be more frustrating. The tax mm. issues in this industry could not be more frustrating as a cost of doing business. But that's also our price to play right now. That's how we got invited to the legal regulated table with a lot of these state governments and the federal government as much as they're allowing us to operate. So I do want to make sure that we're taking the time to do these things right, because I worry as we go down the line for those moments of IPOs or acquisitions, that these could be very real barricades to going through those exit processes for our businesses. So those are just a couple of things that we're really leaning in and thinking about in diligence going forward as these businesses mature. It's a, it's a really important point that Emily brings up because, uh, you know, let's just play this out in our minds. If you look back at this industry five years from now or 10 years from now, pick a, a time and you, you say, what are the top 10 stories in cannabis? None of them have happened yet. I mean, they just haven't. If you, literally, if you look back five years from now, not one story that we've heard today will be one of the top big stories. So it's all to come. And that means we have to do it right. And we can't misstep. And a lot of the things that we're talking about right now that come up that you may not even feel as a problem during your initial underwriting when you make an investment. And like Emily said, if time goes by, months go by and, and you're not in there paying attention to it and everybody's trying to figure things out, something could come up that wasn't even there before. And so those things have to be ironed out because all the big news, all the big transactions, all the major things we're going to do in terms of impact for the world haven't even happened yet. I, I agree. And, and, and I, I would say that that, that to me overemphasizes, as Emily sort of suggested, the importance of having access to competent professionals in the space from, from uh, auditors and accountants to attorneys to insurance professionals. In fact, very recently, uh, the insurance issue has been at the top of a lot of people's minds because there's been a great deal of, um, of, of looting, specifically uh, dispensaries in the Chicago area out west have been looted. I have clients that have lost thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory. And now they're starting to look at their policies and saying, well, geez, I thought I was going to be covered for certain things that I'm not covered for. I need a better insurance professional who's going to be able to walk me through this, not to mention, of course, uh, auditors, accountants, attorneys, and the like. I know we're, we're getting Jonathan, close to the this, end. This is where you plug your email address. Well, you know, I, anybody who wants to find me could find me. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> but um, I, I will, I do want to, ask perhaps one more question before we wrap up and hopefully have time to take a couple of questions. Sort of the, the inside information question, the inside track. What do you guys see as working? What's not working? Where are people getting burned? And, and what do you think is sort of the, the attractive part of this market to be deploying capital? Anybody who wants to answer? I'll do a quick one. I think it's all attractive. And some of the answers you're hearing from George versus you know, matter, Emily, uh, is because people have uh, an appetite for different things. Some people like debt, some people like credit, some people like different stages of equity. The reality is, again, none of the big stuff has happened yet. The history hasn't been written. Um, so there's opportunity everywhere. Do you want to go put debt in large multi-state operators and good rates and have some warrants and some options? It's a good strategy. If you want to get into the supply chain, the B2B companies and be growth equity, late stage equity, bring you know, private banking to the table. There's a lot of work to do there. On the consumer side, hadn't even started yet. Nobody's won anything. So, you know, and, and re the reality is, depending on what your appetite is, now's the time to plug in. It really is. So uh, I know that's a broad answer. The panelists will answer more specifically, but that's the reality. 
Sure. Any, anybody else have anything that they'd want to share in that respect? Yeah. Matt, you, I, didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't give me that, that uh, silver bullet or that great idea of where I, <laughs> where I should be putting my money. But, well, but uh, yeah, I am interested us, in other people's perspective. All of us. How much risk do you want? <laughs> I, I just, uh, type of risk. in uh, terms of, in terms of talking about what's working, I think fundamentally what's working is the actual demand on the consumer side, right? You've seen it even with the quarantine shutdown, a spike in sales leading up to it. As the stimulus checks went out, there was a commiserate spike in sales. I mean, I think what's getting really pronounced is the fact that cannabis is taking its place as a consumer staple. So all the industry has to do is really just get ducks in a row to actually capitalize on the moment. Um, and in terms of opportunity, again, what we focus on are businesses that aren't really, you know, driven by the idea of growth. They're not driven by the idea of we'll get a liquidity window for the owners in a short period of time because ultimately you want people that are invested in their business. And, you know, a lot of the opportunity we've seen in the space has come not just from the, you know, name brand names that you read about in the in the newspapers, but also that small to medium size of the industry. You know, there are a lot of companies that just bootstrap themselves with their own capital, you know, they probably borrowed from friends and family in order to do it. And that's led to a more judicious use of that capital and, and it shows in their businesses. So we've generally been pleasantly surprised despite what you read about in the papers in terms of challenges to the industry. There are companies that really just keep their head down and focus on, on capitalizing on the moment in front of them. And given their support from the ultimate consumer and the ultimate user, yeah, there's just a whole host of avenues of growth for the industry across the board, even in different you know, vice industries, healthcare, pharmaceutical, whatever you want to say. But at the end of the day, you know, operators have to focus on their day-to-day -day operations and making sure they're building a sustainable business as opposed to working towards other goals, which might be more distractive than, than helpful. And I think I, I think that makes a lot of sense, not only for operators or plant touching companies, but for ancillary service providers as well. Um, Todd, do we have time for a couple questions? If there are any, we we do have time for a couple questions, and they are being loaded into the chat. So I'm going to let Barry Gordon, if you want to start your video and ask your question, Barry, we love you. Just the question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Hey, thanks so much. What a great panel, guys. Um, so as one of the physicians in the group, where do you see healthcare, um, wellness, and the focus on that? And I like to say the focus on all of the cannabinoids. I I'm sick of the prohibitionists just ha you know, hammering us on THC, THC, THC. I always come back at them with, no, let's talk all cannabinoids, CBD, CBG, CBN, THCV, and they blank out. So I say if we focus on medical and wellness, that once again, where's your opinion on how that's going to go as we go forward? Thanks, guys. I'll, I'll start from a, just a, a commercial standpoint. Um, while I agree with everything you say, the unfortunate reality on the medical side is that it is, you know, it's behind adult use recreational from a, just a, a practicality standpoint in our, our current construct. Um, I think you have pharmaceutical companies, you have, you know, nutraceutical companies that are just chomping at the bit to get their hands on this, but it's, it, there's got to be some, some semblance of federal legality in order for that to happen. I think you saw a situation when the, when the farm bill passed with CBD uh, uh, derived from hemp, um, it, it caused a lot of confusion in the industry. And now there's a um, probably even more confusion on the CBD side than there is on the THC side. And the, and the, and the sad irony is, is that that's legal. So it's, um, it's unfortunate because I think it's, it, and, and until we have, you know, larger budgets for, 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 for testing and, um, and things of that nature, it's going to take a little bit longer, I'm afraid, but, but I think the big catalyst will be, you know, some type of, of, of quasi-legalization in order to get it really, really kick-started. But I'm certainly not an expert on it, and I'll defer to others if uh, y'all want to opine further. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just throw in my two cents. Again, not the expert when it comes to, um, you know, the various different uses of the plan. Quite frankly, I think that's one of the exciting opportunities in the space is how much we just don't know about this plan and how it could be used to help a lot of people. 
I'm sure a lot of people that are on this call right now can speak to loved ones or even themselves that use cannabis for pain management, for really just vanilla, you know, day-to-day sort of managing their lifestyle. And also, you know, you've read studies about how once recreational markets open up, opioid use tends to decline or stay flat within those states or markets. And so I think it's really just a host of unknowns. I think, you know, there's a lot of research happening clearly until it it's legal in the US, you're probably not going to see, you know, a great deal of R&D happening. But other countries are picking up the slack, you know, whether it's Israel, whether it's in South America, whether it's in Europe, um, there's a lot of attention being focused on to getting smarter about the plant and how it really can improve um, lifestyle. And that, again, is just another avenue of growth that a lot of people that look at recreational markets or, or underwriting deals, they haven't even factored in the whole pharmaceutical component of it, because that remains to be determined. But I think ultimately that would be at least as big as as sort of you know the day to day THC or CBD users are right now. Very cool. I I just want to let everybody know. Unfortunately, uh, there our, our guests are all busy, so I know Emily has to jump in a second, so we can let her go. And and if everybody else, I just want one more question. Um, is Lise Lise Rosman on? You have a really good question. Um, I'd like to let you ask it. If not, I can. So if you can start your video. Yes, though I wasn't expecting to. So apologies. Um, I'm just wondering about the balance between ancillary and plant touching businesses. We do both. And I'm trying to figure out kind of what that looks like for, for you guys and how you think about that in terms of your portfolios at this point. I'm happy to jump in before I exit, if that's good. Okay. Thanks for having yeah. It was fun to see you all. Um, our balance of our portfolio companies is typically around 40% is ancillary and then the remaining is plant touching. And we do kind of keep about a 10% carve out for industrial hemp. And we're, we're investing along with supply chain for processing for textiles, fibers, plastics, all of those things. So we're thinking about a little bit more really on that industrial side, not the CBD side so much. Um, but we like that uh, exposure on the ancillary side because we feel like it works really well as a portfolio synergy with the plant touching operations. And um, I should mention that it's important to us that we geographically diversify our ex- exposure to the plant as well. So we've got across the U- US into Canada and now into um, Central and South America and Europe uh, because we feel like there's just different qualities to those different aspects of the ver- of the vertical for cannabis from a global standpoint. And also to Dr. Barry Gordon's point across um, medical from thinking about it from true pharma through wellness all the way more to that lifestyle slash adult use aspect of the market. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it. And so far it's been working really well. We've seen our company is working really well together. Yeah, I'll, uh, and I've got to jump too after this, but I want to, uh, bye Emily. And, uh, uh, but I do want to, what, similar to Emily, we, we, it's interesting. We didn't set up our first two funds as with a certain percent. Um, in fact, in my first fund, it was just by chance that it became so diversified. And obviously that's what our goal was. We weren't making investment decisions because of that diversification. We've been very fortunate that we do have that diversification um, across all of our funds. And now we are a little more focused on that. We don't have a hard percentage set upon it, but we are like Emily. We also like the fact that we have, because we have 66 companies in our overall portfolio now, um, it's, you can get, uh, you know, these companies working together and uh, and it helps us as fund managers, but we also have, you know, arrangements with portfolio companies that work with one another. Um, and so if you put all your eggs in one basket from a vertical standpoint, you wouldn't have that. So we're firm believers in the diversification. Uh, to Matt Norgren's point earlier, I, we, we believe that, that all sectors have um, the opportunity for the astronomical growth uh, because we think the industry is going there. So um, I'll shut up and jump. And I appreciate uh, C-Lab for having us. And Jonathan, thanks. And George, Matt, see you all soon. Oh, well, it's it's my pleasure, Matt. Before you jump, I've been spending the last yeah. hour trying to figure what you have in that trophy case behind you. It looks pretty impressive. 
I want to run that. Uh, they're none of mine. Well, yeah, as I told Matt earlier, I had to compete. Well, I've been tired of being on conference calls with him and their video calls with his jersey in the background. So I, I see just that had too. To, uh, I had to get uh, go to my golf club to get trophies behind me that weren't even mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta up my game. I, Thanks, I, everybody. I'd like Take to care. thank all Bye-bye. of our panelists for thank joining you us. You guys all did a great job. Thank you so much. Um, like I said, this was a rock star panel. Everybody else, if you want to stick around and network, you're welcome to. Unfortunately, like I said, a lot of these guys are not on the East Coast. They're still working and work very hard. So we'll let them go. If you guys want to stick around, you're welcome to. But thank you again to our panelists. John, thank you so much for moderating this. You did a great job. For, for our guests who want to download the chat and save that information, if you open the chat on the right side, you'll see three little dots. Click save chat and you'll be able to. But this concludes the formal part of our meeting. Anybody who has to go is welcome to go. And anybody who wants to stick around and network, turn your video on and, and have at it. Thank you again. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you want to join a future meeting and you're not a member yet, you can check us out at www.joinclab.com as well as check us out on YouTube at Elevate Your Grind. Go subscribe, please. Uh, Everybody have a great night. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. We'll see who the uh, diehards are that hang out. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's not easy to do virtual networking events anymore. I can tell you that much. How many of these have you done? This is our third virtual panel, third or oh, fourth. Wow. Yeah. How, how many, how many totally attended? Did you, what were your numbers? We had 60 in the meeting and then another like 20 or 30 on Facebook. Live. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's a, that's yeah. a full house in person. Eric, I don't, I don't know if you remember, you and I actually met out in San Jose. We met at the Canavest event. Uh, I, was part with, I was with a different company back then, Bonaventure Equity. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I thought you looked familiar. I didn't, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that you'd moved, though. Very cool. Yeah, I'm still at it. Actually, you know, I think at the time, uh, I, I think I had, I don't know, was it already called Bloomstack or was it DigiGrow? I think you guys had just made it Bloomstack. I remember we were sitting on like a table right outside Canavest and just talking. That's right. Like, yeah, it happened right, wow. right about that time. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. It was actually at that, uh, at that event, I think we ended up, uh, that's when we signed our first, uh, our first design partner, our first client. Very cool. Well, actually, um, just to show you guys how this networking works, Eric, I'm going to reach out to you after this because I, th- I think we've got some some opportunities to work together. Awesome. Um, so yeah. definitely would love to catch up again. Yeah, we're kind of out of stealth mode now. So, you know, when when, yeah. when you and I talked, you might remember I was I really wasn't looking to talk about us too much because we we're still just yeah. trying to get our, our yeah. shit together. So <laughs> we, we, I work for a company called wheelhouse IT and we do a lot of just, you know, traditional IT support and we're working in the cannabis industry and we need, you know, we need really good relationships with ancillary services. So uh, I'm actually looking for you. So, so please, yeah, actually, if you notice in the chat, that's what I posted in there. We're, we're looking for that. Literally, my job was to make sure everybody else stayed quiet and off video. But now everybody can go <laughs> be loud and and come on video. So go do it. Uh, but Eric, so, I'll definitely reach out to you. Okay, please. So I it. wanted to say hello. My name is Steve Braddock from uh, Michigan, uh, Detroit area. I uh, just wanted to get uh, people's thoughts. I was actually out in the Facebook portion of it, uh, watching it from the backside. But uh, what are people's thoughts about? Uh, we're actually building uh, five million square foot custom condos for cannabis. Nice. Might be really interesting. I guess it depends on the site economics, right? I mean, right. that's, that's all. But I, I, I'll tell you what, um, I, I have, uh, how far along is the project? Or is it still well, in, the, in the infancy? The, the developer? We're in the final stages of uh, financing the project currently, the main project. But uh, because we have 5 million feet for uh, grown processing only, um, I mean, essentially, even if you're looking at uh, $300 a square foot, we've got about $1.5 billion just in build-outs. Sure, sure. Uh, and how much infrastructure are you thinking of doing, or is it going to be kind of you know white box? So it's going to be a white box, but there's going to be some value add. Um, the building is uh, – the property includes uh, 
a bank and also on-site testing. But the interesting part of it is the uh, we're going to be offering the tenants free electricity. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Hi, from hey, South America. Yeah. I'm Andres Vasquez. I'm in Peru. Uh, mm -hmm. Just jumping in in case uh, anybody is interested in discussing South America as an option or have experience evaluating projects here, I'm happy to, to talk about I, it. I've what's, experienced what's the current Peru. legal status in Peru? Uh, this moment, uh, regulation is being in. I would say in deployment, uh, licenses are still being issued on okay. imports and commercial license. And we expect that by the end of the year, we'll see the first production licenses on growing and pharmaceutical manufacturing. Right. So it's, it's, it's continue moving forward, but slowly, basically due to the pandemic, right? Peru is one of my favorite countries to visit. And the fact that you guys are going to have cannabis is just going to make it that much better. I mean, just imagine eating here and then having cannabis afterwards. It's gonna be no, no, it's got to be the other way around. You have to have the cannabis first, then eat. It's more of a sandwich. You start with the cannabis, you eat the food, you have the cannabis for dessert, and then you go get real dessert. Like a Napoleon. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to say hi. I'm Nancy Reed with Cincy Media Group. I handle the southeast and northeast part of the United States. Um, we have 15 publications that reach five and a half million people. And we're also getting into digital and several other uh, aspects of advertising. So if I can help any of y'all with any of your businesses, please reach out to me. I put my information in the chat. So I'm honored to be with this group. Uh, C-Lab is an unbelievable group to be a part of with all the, the connections that we have. So thank you for letting me say hello. And Nancy, I really we lost your audio. part of this group. Now you're back. Nice to meet you. And we're actually a member of Sensi here in Michigan. Wonderful. N Nancy, I want to thank you so much for supporting Elevate Your Grind. You watch every episode, you, you share every episode, and, and that means the world to us. Thank you so much for your support. And the rest of you could learn a lesson from her. And we, love, we, love, we love Sensi here too in Venice. Thank That's you. for sure. No doubt about it. This is a great uh, meeting. You know, for the doctor guy, I just like um, – to listen in, you know, I mean, in the, in the emergency medicine world, I just sat there and went to work every day and now I own a clinic and, and, and do what I do, but, but to listen just with fascination on the investment side is fantastic. Thanks for um, allowing me to ask my question. I had no idea I was going to be on doing it, but you can always count on me to try and bring the medical aspect always to cannabis because to me, we need to continue to focus on all of the cannabinoids because I think that's where we always have the advantage in that we know what they don't know. And we need to continue to hammer on them that it's a plant that's so fascinating and we haven't even had the chance to scratch the surface on research. So I just appreciate the fact of being able to join in and, and listen and every once in a while I have a chance to, to chime in. But I'm always going to be here to remind everybody about the beautiful uh, medicine that the plant is. Oh. All right, folks. Well, I have to bounce. I thank everybody for coming today. Um, I'm going to leave you in good hands with Amanda and Rob, but everybody enjoy. Thank you for coming. Again, we have our branding panel next week, which is Thursday the 18th. Um, that's going to be a really good panel. We've, we've got some, some titans in the industry, the, the CMO of Truly, the CMO of, uh, of Curaleaf, Mursky, Rosie Matteo. Um, it's going to be a really good one. And, and that is going to be hosted by our very own Evan Bopp. Um, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to that one. If you guys haven't seen yet, uh, we're probably going to drop the Jared Mursky uh, podcast next week. And we already have it with uh, Yesenia, Valda, and, uh, and Rosie. So go check those out on YouTube and make sure you subscribe. So I'm out. Everybody have a good night. Thank you again for coming. <laughs>